And so today we want to get in the Word of God and invite you to join me in John chapter 14. This weekend we celebrate the birth of America and a nation that was founded by people who were oppressed and they sought freedom. Listen, we're thankful for all that we have received here, but it was built upon those that desired the freedom to follow God, to, to obey the words and commands of Scripture. And these pilgrims, as they sought a nation that would give them liberty, they came to the new world with that desire, desire and founded their own society built on Christ's principles of freedom. You know, in a day and an age in which American exceptionalism has been cast to the side, I'm thankful that we can still be Americans. I'm thankful that we can still say, God bless America. But truly, I don't know, I, I truly believe that God wants to bless America if we as God's people will humble ourselves. And so let us be there. Let me remind you what the Bible says in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1. It says, Then fast therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again in the yoke of bondage. So oftentimes, uh, we love to talk about our liberty, we love to talk about our freedom, but that only comes through Jesus Christ. And the freedoms that we enjoy today are built upon this principle in Galatians 5.1, that liberty is only possible through Jesus Christ. Christ, He's the one that set us free. And He helped us to free us from the bondage of sin he helped to free us from the bondage of the terror of hell. He's the one that helped broke the, uh, break the yoke of Satan. And let me just tell you, he is the one that offers freedom even today. Not just in the past, but today. He offers you freedom in your life. But listen, freedom is never free. Ronald Reagan, uh, a former president, said freedom is never more than one generation away from extin extinction. We didn't pass it to our children in the bloodstream. It must be fought for, protected, and handed on for them to do the same. Or one day, we will spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it was once like in the United States where men were free. Just as our nation remembers and celebrates the great freedom that we have been offered through the sacrifice of great men and women who have served and given their life and limb in pursuit and perseverance of national freedom, we owe an even greater debt to the one that bought our spiritual freedom. His name is Jesus Christ. You see, he bought our freedom, our spiritual freedom, with his blood sacrifice. He gave his life for us. What a lasting value is it is to, to live in a free nation. What good is it to live in a free nation if we're still bond by the destructive and deceptiveness of the shackles of sin? How, how terrible it is to be able to live in a nation where you can hear on the airways and on YouTube and Facebook and, and go on television and you can watch and hear the gospel and still be trapped in the addictions and despair and destitution of sin in this world. What a shameful thing that so many people today are still still living in bondage. You see, when Christ was here, He warned us about Satan's destructive nature. And then He contrasts it with Christ's plan for our life. He says in John 10, 10, He says, The thief cometh not but to for to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That's Satan's plan. He says that's why He came. In John 8, 44, He says, The Father of all lies. He's the one that des desires the destruction. He says in 1 Peter 5, 8, He's as a roaring lion seeking whom He may devour. But this is what Jesus said, I am come that you might have life. And they might have it more abundantly. That's what Jesus offers. 
That's the freedom. That's the hope that we have today in Jesus Christ. And I tell you, church, I'm excited because we don't, we're just we're celebrating our nation, but really what we're celebrating is Jesus Christ because none of this is possible without Him. You see, because of the debilitating and destructive nature of our sin, we needed forgiveness. But forgiveness could only happen through a sacrificial death. You see, I couldn't die for you and you couldn't die for me. That's not enough to offer forgiveness for the sins and the atrocities of my own life. It took someone else. It took Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, to die for us. And so Christ, He came to this earth and He purchased for us on the cross something of far greater value than anything this world offers. You see, as Jesus speaks to His disciples in John 14, He foretells them that there would be a separation They would be separated from Jesus Christ in just a few short hours and and three days. uh, Hence, they would be separated. Then they uh, they would see Him resurrect from the dead. They would be tempted. They would be drawn away by doubt and and things that would permeate their hearts and and questions. And, And yet Christ takes a moment to explain the blessings of sacrifice. Sacrifice isn't easy. That's why it's sacrifice. Amen. In the Old Testament... In order to uh, bring uh, a redemption offering, they would bring a a lamb into the tabernacle. And this was typically a lamb without blemish or spot. It never had a broken bone. It symbolized the perfect sacrifice that would one day hang on the cross of of Calvary, Jesus Christ. And they bring this lamb that they had raised and they had nurtured and they had cared for and they had loved. And they bring it into the tabernacle where where the owner of that lamb would place his hand on the the head of that, uh, that lamb as the priest would slit its throat. It was a very gruesome and very vivid uh, picture of what Jesus would do on Calvary for us. You see, just as that was not free, it cost them something. The freedom we enjoy in America isn't free either. It required a costly sacrifice. I appreciate Brother Greg asking those men and women who have served in our armed forces to stand here today. And we can be reminded of the sacrifice that they Uh, that they had to endure through those times where you served our country. But listen, it wasn't just your sacrifice. It was the sacrifice of your families. There were some that I couldn't be here today because they gave the ultimate sacrifice. Also, we could see freedom preserved from this generation to the next generation. So Christ's sacrifice is the same. You see, Christ's sacrifice was necessary. It was one of those things that brought vindication to his ministry. And through this gruesome tragedy, we see his message was verified and Satan would be defeated as Christ rose in victory on that third day. You see, the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ are central truths to the Christian faith. Matter of fact, we're here today because Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose again. We have reason, we have hope uh, today because of Christ's resurrection. J.C. Ryle, who declared 150 years ago, he said, Christ's death is the grand peculiarity of the Christian religion. Other religions have laws and moral precepts, forms and ceremonies, rewards and punishments. But other religions cannot tell us of a dying Savior. They cannot show us the cross. This is the crown and glory of the gospel, where God became man and He humbled Himself on the cross. You see, the cross is at the very heart of all that we as believers hold dear. John Walford, who was a great theologian, said, In the study of Christ and His sufferings and death, one is in a holy of holies, a mercy seat sprinkled with blood, 
to which the, only the Spirit-taught mind has access. In His death, Christ supremely revealed the holiness and righteousness of God as well as the love of God which prompted the sacrifice. In a similar way, the infinite wisdom of God is revealed as no human mind would ever have devised such a way of salvation. And only an infinite God would be willing to sacrifice His Son. See, Christ's sacrificial death was the goal, was the goal of the incarnation of Christ. It was the reason he came. He said, listen, I came to seek and to save that which is lost. He came so that we who were dead might be uh, given life. He said, listen, I'm come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. And so that through his death, we might be reconciled as sinners back to God once again. In 2 Corinthians 5, 18, it says, And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given us the ministry of reconciliation. He desires to take that which was broken and make it whole again. He wants to take those who are estranged and bring them back to the Lord once again so there might be relationship and fellowship all again. You see, the cross wasn't a disruption of the divine plan. It wasn't an accident, but it was what God had designed before time began. And that is evidence from the Lord's repeated predictions as he regarded, as he began to tell his disciples, listen, I'm going to go away, but I'll come again unto you. As we read in the text today, he says other times more plainly, he says, listen, I'm going to be dying, I'm going to rise again. Just as Jonas was three days and three nights in the belly of the well, so will I be there in the, uh, in the uh, pit of the hell. And I tell you, I am thankful that Jesus Christ was not uh, just accidentally stumbling into something, but here on purpose that he said, listen, I came to be a sacrifice to serve, and to give my life a ransom for many. You see, Matthew 16, 21, it says, And from that time forth Jesus uh, began Jesus to show his disciples how that he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many, many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised again the third day. He's, he foretold of his suffering before it ever happened. But his for, suffering was foretold by the Old Testament prophets, by John the Baptist, by Moses and Elijah at the transfiguration. You see, Christ's once-for-all sacrifice is central to the life of the church today. Baptism pictures, here in a few minutes at the end of our service, we'll see how, uh, Brother Terry, who's going to come and submit himself to baptism today. We're excited for him and, and, and Christine in this moment in their life. And, and as they have, have just shared in, uh, testimony of salvation in Jesus Christ, they said, listen, Jesus Christ, we believe that he came, he died, and he rose again. And I want to identify with him through baptism. Baptism pictures that death, that burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so as we lay him down and we bring him up through the water we see that picture of Christ's death his burial and praise the Lord his resurrection you see that's seen in, uh, even as we observe communion when we uh, uh, do so we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes is what 1 Corinthians 11 says it says in the preaching of the gospel we preach Christ crucified is what 1 Corinthians 1 teaches us it is the central message of everything we do today is as Jesus Christ and him crucified you see the world doesn't want to hear about blood. It doesn't want to hear about sacrifice. It doesn't want to hear about Christ laying down His life and dying for us. Because in our humanistic mindset, we want to believe that, listen, I can atone for my own sins, but the Bible says all of my righteousness, all of my goodness, all of the things that I think are so wonderful are like filthy rags in God's sight. So we needed someone greater than me. We needed the Savior, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God who would leave heaven and come to earth and die in our place. 
You see, because Christ's death brings to life all the rich blessings of salvation. Through His death as believers, we are justified. This is a term, a legal term that means declared righteous. Isn't that awesome? When I stand before God one day and I enter into His throne room and I go before Him, He's going to look at me and He's not going to see the dirty, rotten sinner that I was. He's going to see me justified, declared righteous, clothed in Christ's righteousness, no longer ashamed, but now a child of God. That is the glorious thing that Christ offers. You know, Paul wrote that those who put their faith in Christ are justified by His blood. Romans 5, 9 says, Much more than being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. You see, the Bible teaches us that it is by Jesus Christ's death and that blood that was shed on the cross that we can be justified. You can't be justified by bulls and goats as Hebrews 9, 27 teaches us. It is only through Jesus Christ. God declares repentant sinners righteous because Christ paid the penalty for their sins. Ephesians 1, 7, In whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. You see, where the blood of bulls and goats was insufficient to bring us out of the bondage of sin, we find that Christ's blood was enough. It was satisfied that payment that was due. And so on the cross, Christ cried out, It is finished. That, that Greek word literally means paid in full. No longer am I a debtor. Now through Jesus Christ and, and my faith in Him, now I stand before God without any debts, without any worries or fears that I've got something else to pay because Christ cried out, it is finished on the cross. It is paid in full. Jesus paid it all, all to Him I owe. Hebrews 9, 12, 12 says, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood, He entered in once into the holy place and having obtained eternal redemption for us. Why only once? Because it only took once. You see, He didn't have to die over and over and over again. He didn't have to continually uh, lay down His life. His, his sacrifice was sufficient once for all of eternity and for all of us today. You see, only Christ's blood on the cross that was spilt was able to satisfy God's holy wrath. Romans 3.25 says, Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. This word propitiation means sacrifice. So Jesus is our sacrifice for our sins. 1 John 2, 2 says, as, uh, And He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. You see, it's not just a select few, as some would, would want to proclaim, but God says that Christ's blood was sufficient for all men that they might be saved. But it's like anything, it's a gift that is freely offered. And sometimes we freely also reject that gift, but God desires for all men to be saved. You see, God's earnest desire was that you and I and every person in this world would put their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. But sadly, many have rejected that today. But God still calls us to proclaim that good news. You see, because that's where liberty begins. That's where true freedom is found is in Jesus Christ. You see, God had determined before that without the shedding of blood, there could be no forgiveness. So it was essential that Christ would die to obtain forgiveness for us. The night before His death, Jesus said this, Matthew 26, 28, For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. In Colossians, Paul also wrote this, Colossians 2, 13 and 14, And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, 
hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances which was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. You see, the death of Christ reconciles all believer, believing sinners to God. Romans 5, 10 and 11 says, For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only so, but we also, in, uh, we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we now have uh, received the atonement. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto Himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. You know what he says? Listen, Christ did this for us. We, we have great blessings from Christ, Christ's death, His burial, and His resurrection. Matter of fact, uh, Leon Morris summarized all that, what Christ's death means for us. And I just made a list of 16 things uh, here that he had uh, mentioned in his book. And he said, first off, in Ephesians 1, 7, we are redeemed. Are you redeemed today? Amen. Amen. What a joyful thing today that we can know that we've been uh, bought by Him. I belong to Him. Secondly, we are made nigh to God in Ephesians 2.13. No longer am I an outcast. I'm no longer a stranger, but instead I've been brought in. That means that it's not just an American thing. It's a Russian thing, and it's a, a European thing, and it's an African thing. It's all around the world. God has made each of us who put our faith in Jesus Christ nigh to Him. Thirdly, we see we are reconciled to God in Colossians 1 and verse 20. And number four, Jew and Gentile are now made one in Ephesians 2.16. The Bible says also in Hebrews 9.14 that we are cleansed. There's no longer am I worried about that old sinful nature coming through. Romans 5.9 teaches that we are justified as we talked a while ago. Hebrews 10.10 teaches that we are sanctified in Him. In Hebrews 10.14, He teaches us that we are perfected forever. In, Hebrew, in Revelation 5 and verse number 9, we have been purchased unto God. I belong to Him. Amen. Number 10, we see that Colossians 2.14 teaches us that the bond that was against us has been nailed to the cross. I love It Is Well With My Soul, one of my favorite songs. And then it says, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part was the, in the, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. I tell you, that's what Jesus Christ did in, uh, as Colossians 2.14 teaches us. Hebrews 10, 19, we have a boldness then, then to enter into the, His holy place. Revelation 1, 5, we are loosed from our sins. I'm no longer bound to them. Instead, we can have victory in Jesus, as the old song says. Victory in Jesus. What a wonderful blessing we can have in Him. Revelation 12, 11, we may uh, overcome by the blood of the Lamb. Amen and amen. Colossians 1, 20 says, and by His cross, peace with God has been secured. Isn't that wonderful to know that we can have peace with God? So many times people are living in struggle and turmoil in their life and, and they can feel it in their inner person. But when Christ comes in, He makes a difference. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five 25 teaches us that His blood establishes a new covenant and we're enjoying that today. Titus 2 verse 14 says, His death was to redeem us from all iniquity. I tell you, there are many blessings that we received. I echo Paul's sentiments as he proclaimed in Galatians 6.14, he says, But God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we, the, the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. Listen, our glory is not in a man today. It's in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The glory for all the good that we see is in Christ alone. 
Because of its supreme significance, we see Paul also boldly proclaim this in 1 Corinthians 2.2. For I determined not to know anything among you save the Lord Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He is the preeminent one. He is the one that we worship today. He's the one that we sing to. He is the one that we lift up as we sing Amazing Grace or we sing It Is Well. We can have peace in our soul because He truly brings peace to troubled hearts. Listen, He is the premier and preeminent figure of all that we do here today. And we worship Him. But not just for what He's done, but also for who He is. You see, Christ uh, mentions not only what blessings we receive, and the Bible is explicit. We can go cover to cover in Genesis to Revelation, and we can find time and again how that God demonstrates how that we benefit greatly from Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And we are great uh, inheritors of all that God has promised. As a matter of fact, He says we are joint heirs with Christ. Isn't that good? I get to be a joint heir with my Jesus. Man, when we leave here today, I, I get to leave here knowing as a believer that I don't have to be downcast, I don't have to be discouraged because one day I will join my Lord and Savior in the house of God, eternal in the heavens. What a wonderful blessing that we have there. But listen, he also, though, was blessed by the sacrifice. On the eve of his crucifixion and is where we find ourselves in John 14. And the 11 disciples didn't fully understand everything and the significance of Jesus' death at this point. But you got to remember, all their hopes, their dreams, their ambitions, they were centered on Jesus Christ. And as a matter of fact, they thought that Jesus would eventually overthrow the Roman government. And they thought they expected him to be able to put, uh, usurp his authority over the Romans and set up his own little kingdom right there in Israel. But listen, God's plan was bigger and God's plan was better. They, they had the short-sighted view, but God has a bigger view. And let me just, just a point of note here. Sometimes in life, we're like those disciples, and we just see the short-sighted uh, thing. And I don't understand, well, God, why this is happening. God, I don't understand why this is happening. And, but let me just remind you that God sees things from a much bigger, broader perspective. And he's seeing things from the, be from the beginning. He's seeing all the way to the end. And he sees these things and he knows. And as we trust in him, we'll see just as his divine plan works out perfectly here in John, that he will work out his plan perfectly in our life. He says in Jeremiah 29, 11, that he has a good plan. And when we trust in him, we rest in him, then his yoke is easy and his burden is light. You see, they had forsaken everything to follow Jesus. They're families, their fortunes, everything had been put off so they could follow Jesus Christ. And now they were looking to Him, the Messiah, believing that maybe uh, that, that He would do something spectacular in this moment, but Jesus was preparing them for something better. And He says, Let me, let's read our text today in John chapter 14 and verses 28 through 31. Just as a reminder, we left off last week in John 14, 27. And he says this, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world give, giveth, give I unto you. Neither uh, Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And so he reminds them of the peace of God, which passes all understanding. And, and we remember that from last week. But verse 28, we pick up here and he says, You have uh, heard now, I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If you love me, ye would rejoice, because I said unto you, I go to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it come to pass that when it is come to pass, ye might believe. 
Hereafter I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me, but that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandments, so even so do I. Arise, let us go hence. Let's stop and pray there together. Father, we thank you for this wonderful text of Scripture, and Lord, just the wonderful words of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we ask you now that you would bless the reading of the Word, Lord, that you would open our hearts to the moving of the Spirit, and that, Lord, your Son would have, be the preeminent one in this room today. That, Lord, maybe there's some in here that come with, uh, with uh, burdens, burdens of sin or life, and may they find rest in Jesus Christ. Lord, truly, you are sufficient. Lord, you satisfy every longing. And so we just come before you this morning asking you to do what, what man cannot. Heal, work, and hear. In Jesus' name, amen. The Lord had supplied every need for these disciples. Over the course of the last three years or so, they had worked together, they, they lived together, they slept in the similar proximities, and, and so they, every emotional, every spiritual need, every physical need was supplied by Jesus Christ. They reacted then with Jesus' predictions of His in, uh, impending death with great shock. They, a matter of fact, they were uh, cast with fear. This is in, in, in two, two times so far in John 14. He says, let not your heart be troubled. In John 14, 1, and then John 14, 27, he reminds them, listen, don't be overwhelmed by anxiety. Don't give your, your, yourself uh, to dwell upon those things because there's something greater that you have to look forward to. As a matter of fact, this thing that I have for you is greater than you can imagine. Though it's going to be painful right now, he said, you're going to have reason to rejoice. Matter of fact, as we see this, we see he reminded them that he would care for them even in his absence by sending the Holy Spirit. We saw that in a uh, couple of uh, verses uh, previously, that the Comforter would come and guide them. He would abide with them. He would dwell with them forever. He would empower them he would, uh, and, and guide them in their life. And so despite the, the Lord's promises to them, including the guarantee of his resurrection, the disciples were disturbed. And so he led them once again to uh, John 14, 27. But really, this anxiety that they had was selfish. It was short-sighted. And they saw the Lord's death not as, what, uh, not as what they could gain, but what they would lose. Sometimes when we look at circumstances and situations around us, we often see, look at everything I'm going to lose because of everything, all the bad that's happening. But we miss the gain. I'm reminded uh, just this week of the goodness of the Lord. In the midst of terrible circumstances, God is still good. Amen? We look at circumstances, and, and when we look at it, we say, man, uh, how can God bless this? And, and just recently, it's still very raw and fresh in my mind, so if I talk about it, forgive me, and you get tired of hearing about it, just forgive me. Uh, the Lord's, uh, Lord's uh, working in my heart through this. But after Mom died, we saw six, six or seven people there at her funeral uh, that trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior. But I had a niece that wasn't saved. Young girl, about 10 years old, Emma is her name. She'll be 10, I think, Tuesday. And man, we were praying for her. We were talking to her about the Lord. And she said, no, I, I don't want to at this point. And, and, and through it all, we just kept praying and just kept asking the Lord. And this week at youth camp, she received the Lord Jesus Christ as her Savior. I tell you, God uses the, even the worst of circumstances to bring good through it. And as we go through those things, I want to just encourage you, instead of seeing what you're going to lose, see what God has to gain through it all. Now, 
Verse 28, as we look here in this passage, has been a tremendous uh, help and a balm, like a healing salve in my personal life. And he says this to his disciples, You have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again to you. And he says these words, If you love me, you would rejoice, because I said I go unto the Father. As Jesus Christ began to talk to his disciples, he reminds them of this reality. He says, Listen, I'm about to, I'm about to die. He says, but don't worry, I'm going to come again, I'm going to see you again. It's not forever, but, but there's going to be a time where we're going to be separated. But don't fear, don't fret, and certainly don't grieve me. He said, in, instead, what he said was, I want you to rejoice. Now gather this for a moment, and, and maybe you just hit my simple mind as a, as a ton of bricks this week. But he said this, if you loved me, you would rejoice. You know, in my, in my uh, grief and, and things that we're working through, as we walk through those things, I, I just I came across this passage and I realized that God calls us as Christians when, when our loved one who is a believer uh, deceased is, uh, dies, then God calls us to rejoice for them. It's not a time of sorrow, but a time of rejoicing. And Jesus said, listen, this is not a time of sorrow either. And she says, this is God working His plan. And I'm about to suffer at the hands of evil man, but never fear. Don't worry, don't fret, don't grieve. Instead, trust me through it all. You see, the noblest form of love doesn't seek its own, right? Matter of fact, we talk about unconditional love many times, and it says it puts no stipulations or anything on it. And he, in 1 Corinthians 13, he talks about it. It doesn't seek his own is how he says it there. But instead, it does what is best for the object. Jesus exposed the weakness of the disciples' love and then he said, listen, I want you to see the cross from a different perspective. Instead of ruining our relationship, it's reuniting something even greater. So what a comfort we have as Christians. When our loved ones go to be with the Father, it's not a time of sorrow but rejoicing. It's not a time of grief, but to, instead we get to bask in God's goodness. And then our grief, like the disciples, is, is no longer self-focused, it's Savior-focused. And when we, when we grieve what we have lost, we lose what God wants us to gain. Let me share three things with you, four things with you uh, by way of time, if we have it this morning, about what Jesus Christ was able to share with His disciples here. Four things that vindicated His ministry, that demonstrated that He was truly, uh, 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 this, this sacrifice that He was about to have would be a blessing, not just to us, but also to Him. First off, and we see in verse number 28, the last part of that chapter, verse there, that it vindicated his ministry. He says, I, uh, I said, I go into the Father, for my Father is greater than I. You know, I, must, I have no idea what it must have been like for the eternal Son of God to leave the glories of heaven where he experienced literally a perfect fellowship with his Father and then come to a sin-scarred world and become a man. He was sinless, and yet he had to become a man. He was perfect, and yet he had to live among people like, with the likes of us. Yet he experienced weakness, he experienced fatigue and hunger and thirst. Uh, at the table this week, by our family, we were joking about some of the things that Jesus must have experienced, uh, and it, we just kind of got a kick of, out of some of those things that you don't normally think about that is part of just day-to-day -day life. And we just kind of got to laughing there as we were eating our supper one day. And, and it just reminded me of the reality that Jesus, though 100% God, was still 100% man. And he knew what it was to, to be fatigued. He knew what it was to hunger. He knew what it was to be thirsty. How many of you are thirsty right now? Don't think about it. 
I promise I'll try not to drink water in front of you. Listen, he was anticipating returning to the fullness of the glory he had experienced before all of that. He was about to go back to the Father where he would be reunited with the one uh, that he was one with in the beginning. And so we see this, that Jesus Christ had accomplished the Father's will perfectly and he was looking forward to his Father's presence. Ephesians chapter two, uh, 1 and verse 20 through 21, it says, "...which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead when he, and set him down at his own right hand in heavenly places." far above all principality and power and might and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. You see, as Christ gave his life through his self, uh, selfless sacrifice, his humility in obeying the Father's will justified his ministry. Some will look at that statement, though, at the end and say, for my Father is greater than I. And they try to build an entire religious system out of that one. And they say, well, listen, obviously Jesus wasn't God because of all of this thing. There's, there's this hierarchy. But the reality was, the Bible teaches that God is a triune God. He reveals Himself as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They are three distinct persons, yet one Jesus is that second person of the Trinity. He is co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father. But what he's stating is that his will is subservient to that of the Father. He humbled himself and took the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. Christ wasn't referring to his nature as God, but what he's referring to was a submissiveness in his role during his earthly ministry on earth. You see, Jesus Christ was saying, listen, he... I want to do His will. We see this later in the Garden of Gethsemane as He prayed and said, Father, not my will, but Thine be done. He was saying, listen, God, I want, I, Father, I want You to lead. I want You to direct. I want You to be the preeminent one. You see, His willingness to submit to the Father justified His ministry on this earth. If He had said, listen, I'm not going to do that nonsense. I'm not going to die for these people. They've spit on me. They've, they've plucked out my beard. They've, uh, they, they've been everything but good to me. He would have never been the Son of God. He would have been a spawn of Satan. You see, but his sacrifice vindicated his ministry. In the same way, we're called to follow Christ's example. Consider this. We're called to take up his, our cross and follow Jesus. We're called to be a living sacrifice in Romans 12.1. And then when we humble ourselves to God's perfect will, we too are blessed by our sacrificial life. Listen, listen, Christ's sacrifice blessed him not only because it vindicated his ministry, but also it verified his message in verses 29 through 30. It says, Now I've told you before it come to pass that when it come to pass, ye might believe. You see, the disciples believed that Jesus was the Messiah and the Son of God. On two occasions, they even uh, affirmed this. Peter proclaimed at one point, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And another time, uh, when all the superficial disciples had left following, he says, we believe uh, and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, in John 6, 69. But despite these testimonies, they still struggled with doubt. This doubt prompted Jesus to rebuke them. As a matter of fact, not just once, but multiple times. In a short while earlier, Jesus wanted to strengthen their faith. He says in John 13, 19, Now I tell you before it come, that when it is come to pass, ye may believe that I am He. Then the disciples understood from the Old Testament that only God could predict the future. Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 9, Behold, the former things are come to pass, and new things do I declare. Listen, he says, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. 
Jesus uh, was able to tell them what would happen beforehand, just like the God of the Old Testament, Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. He says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times to the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all, the, all my pleasure. You see, it's only God that can tell the end from the beginning. You see, Israel's idols were exposed as false idols time and, and time and time again because they couldn't foretell the future. Matter of fact, Isaiah chapter 41, verses 22 and 23 says, Let them bring forth and show us what shall happen. Talking about the idols. Let them show the former things what they be, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them. Oh, declare us things for to come. Show the things that are to come hereafter, that we may know that ye are gods. Yea, do good or do evil, that we may be dismayed and behold it together. Because if they couldn't predict the future, God replies this in the next verse. Behold, ye are of nothing, and your work of naught. An abomination is he that chooseth you. You see what Christ was, was telling the disciples here in verse 29. He says, listen, I've already told you what's going to happen. So that on the other side of this, you'll be able to look back and say, yes, he is God. You see, he wanted to validate, uh, just to verify his message there. And John 2, it says, When he was therefore risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. You see, the fulfillment of Christ's predictions verified the message. It helped convince those disciples of Jesus' deity. But listen, the thirdly, we see there's victory in his mission. And verse, and verse 30 says, And hereafter I will not uh, talk much with you, for the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. In the second of three references here in John's gospel, he calls, um, calls Satan as a ruler of the world. Now the devil is not the legitimate ruler of the world, but he's a divinely permitted usurper. So he comes in and he's the ruler of the evil world system and God allows him to do certain things in this life, as we, uh, in this world, as we see in the book of Job. And Jesus saw that Satan's coming in, the, uh, in, in multiple different ways. We saw him uh, in Judas. We saw him in the Jewish leaders, even in the Roman soldiers who would uh, take him in Gethsemane. But Jesus had been in conflict with Satan throughout his life. Matter of fact, if you remember, as an infant, it was Satan that prompted Herod to kill him and all uh, the other male children in the vicinity of Bethlehem. Obviously, God worked in that uh, situation again and led Joseph and Mary out of that dangerous situation. But then later, in, at the beginning of Christ's ministry, Jesus was led uh, 40 days in the wilderness, and during that time, he was tempted of Satan. But I love this about our Lord and Savior. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. You know what he's teaching? Our Savior went through the same things you do. Our Savior endured the same temptations you do. And in 1 John 2, uh, 16, he teaches us that, that uh, the love of the flesh and the love of the eyes and the pride of life, he said these things are the same things that Jesus Christ had to endure while he was on this cross at a much greater uh, level than we ever have. And yet the Bible says he was without sin sin. So what's the result of that? One, He can be our Savior. He's the only one that can be the Lord uh, and, and be, a, be a subs, uh, the substitutionary sacrifice. Secondly, He is compassionate. 
He is caring to our plight and, and, the, and the place in which we live. 1 Peter 5, 7 tells us, Casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Be sober, be vigilant, for, uh, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. You see, Satan desired to kill Jesus, even, even in this moment, before the cross. In just a few short hours, Jesus' lifelong conflict with the devil would reach its climax. Satan would finally succeed in killing uh, Jesus, but in so doing, he brought about his own destruction. You see, because this is what the Bible says in 1 John 3, 8, For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. In Hebrews 2, 14, that through death he might destroy him that had power uh, of death, that is, the devil. You see, it was Christ's death that was the death, uh, death knell for Satan himself, because Christ's death brought us victory. The final sentence against him, against Satan, will be carried out after the millennial kingdom. One last thing here today. It validated his motivation. Christ's sacrifice was the ultimate proof to the world that he loved the Father. Jesus had just emphasized that the essential test of love is obedience, and now he would demonstrate his love for the Father by doing exactly what the Father had commanded him. Look in verse number 31. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so do I. You know what he's saying? He says, listen, I want everyone to know that I love my Father, and so I'm going to obey. How do you spell love, O-B-E-Y? Amen. Listen, in the same way, our obedience demonstrates our love. Obedience shows love. When, we walk, when talking with Timothy, Paul wrote to tell him to watch for the signs of the last days. And he says this in 2 Timothy 3, 1 and 2. He says, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetors, boasters, proud, blasphemer, disobedient to parents. I believe these are linked together here in this passage that when we love ourselves more than anything else, disobedience follows. You see, it's only when we deny self that there is room for obedience and sacrifice. In a generation that has become consumed with self, it is both exhilarating and startling to see a Christian who is genuinely in love with God. You see, Christ's sacrifice was a blessing. Not only to us, but also to Him. In the same way those patriots of old were willing to be a living sacrifice, we stand here today still receiving the blessings of a great sacrifice. In 1776, there were 56 men who were willing to sign their name on the Declaration of Independence. 56 men who gave and gave and gave of their life. They knew what it was to love an ideal or a dream or freedom greater than themselves. One such man was a man named Thomas Nelson. At the Battle of Yorktown, the British General Cornwallis had taken over Thomas Nelson's home for his headquarters. And Nelson, standing beside General George Washington, stood beside him and he quietly told him to open fire on his own home. He said, destroy it. If he's in there, he said, take it out. The home was completely destroyed. At the end of the battle, Nelson was bankrupt, and he died penniless. He sacrificed his own home for the sake of American independence. Another signer of the independence was a man named John Hart. 
During the war, John Hart was driven from his wife's bedside as she was dying. As she was there, he wanted to be by her side, but he could not stay. He couldn't remain. And they had 13 children who fled for their lives. And at, through the, the course of the, the, the war, his fields and his mill were destroyed. And, and over a year, he lived in forests and in caves running. And finally, he returned home only to find his wife dead and his children vanished. A few weeks later, he died himself from exhaustion. You see... We have great blessings today in this nation because of men like John Hart, men like Thomas Nelson, and others, many, many, many others. But we have greater blessing as a Christian because of one named Jesus Christ. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me just remind you that God offers you freedom in Him. Freedom from the tyrant of this world, the prince of the air. He offers you to be able to know that you have a home in, uh, in heaven that is eternal with God the Father. In our, uh, our Declaration of Independence, we hear these words that were written so wonderfully and masterfully. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Yet you can have no liberty without Jesus. You can have no true happiness without the, the one that offers joy in the midst of your soul, a joy that rises above the circumstances and allows your soul to be at peace. And today, He invites you. He invites you to come and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He laid down His life for yours. And He invites you to know this freedom.